0: Good afternoon, welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I'm the director of the Center for Representative Government here at the Cato Institute. And as part of my ambit here, I am in charge of studies of elections. And of course, it goes without saying that once again in that four-year dreary exercise or seemingly dreary exercise of uh, electing a president, we are once again on the very uh, precipice of going through that and having a new president or the same president for 2013. In that context, our book forum today on Who's Counting? How Fraudsters and Bureaucrats Put Your Vote at Risk by John Funn and Hans von Spakovsky is very relevant. We are essentially going into a presidential election where there is some doubts uh, on many sides about whether or not, we're going to have uh, a election that'll come off well. Uh, and of course, we all do this in the shadow. Uh, still, uh, we have this election in the shadow of the 2000 election, in which we had uh, numerous problems with election administration and with elections. So the, the book today, we are uh, by Hans and John Fund, uh, goes to these issues and is, is very relevant. And we decided that Cato would be a good idea to have a book for him on it. Uh, We're going to begin by today, as usual, as you may know. For the next hour and a half or so, we're going to have about an hour or so of presentations from the authors and a couple of commentators. Uh, I will introduce each person before they start, uh, and uh, then we'll uh, break about one o'clock or so and have questions and answers from you. You can ask uh, people uh, here what they your your own concerns and interests about this issue. So let's get right into it. Uh, we'll begin with uh, uh, our first speaker will be John Fund. Uh, John is the national affairs columnist for National Review magazine and a frequent commentator on television. Uh, he has written on election irregularities for The Wall Street Journal, The New Republic, and other publications. And John reminded me this morning, and which uh, is, in fact, this, he has a special relationship. Uh, not only in that John comes very often to participate in our forums here at Cato, but John was, in fact, the first intern at the Cato Institute. So, John, welcome back once again.
1: Well, that title is under dispute. Tom Palmer also claims it, I understand, but uh, we both came at the same time. I... Uh, Hans and I wrote this book for a very important reason, which is the memory of 2000 and the presidential election that brought us the Bush versus Gore meltdown, 47 days of constitutional uncertainty, uh, an incredible, heated, passionate debate in this country that left real scars on our body politic. That specter is facing us again. I know that the conventional wisdom right now is that there's a clear leader in the public opinion polls, but I venture to say I think this election is going to be very, very close. Um, at this point in the 2000 campaign between Bush versus Gore in the Gallup tracking poll, the lead for Gore was five points. It's just a point above that right now between Obama and Romney. I suspect this race will tighten, and if it tightens and it's very close, we could be in 2000 all over again. But there are some differences. In 2000, we had a dispute basically in only one state. There were other states that were equally close. But frankly, um, Florida had so many electoral votes that basically everything gravitated towards Florida in terms of the legal challenges and the recounting. If we have a similarly close election this time, I suspect we're going to have Floridas in three, four, or five states. Because unlike Florida in 2000, where the lawyers didn't expect to fight that battle, there are 10,000 lawyers on both sides of the political divide waiting to pounce in any election that's close. You no longer have to win an election in this country with a margin of victory. You have to win it with a margin beyond litigation. Now, our book addresses two concerns about our election system. One is bureaucratic bungling, and one is the potential that bureaucratic bungling can lead to voter fraud. Now, we have a decentralized election system in this country. It's done at the county level. And I think that's properly the case. But it does lead to wide variations in the quality of our election administration. And Walter Dean Burnham, who is the premier political scientist uh, for many American uh, scholars, says, we have the sloppiest election system of any industrialized democracy. We have a system in which some states have laws that are so vague, so loosey-goosey, so sloppy, that they become engraved invitations to voter fraud. Um, The joke is that you sometimes can't tell where the incompetence ends and the fraud begins. I'll give you as an example the Washington state governor's race in 2004, which was ultimately decided by 129 votes. The King County Board of Elections found new ballots in the recounts 18 different times, 18 different times. This did not lead to confidence in the election administration. And in fact, King County, later the citizens voted to change the process by which the election director was selected. The judge who heard the contest in that case concluded that more votes, illegal votes, from felons and others had been cast in that election than the margin of victory but decided we could not be certain as to who they voted for, he was not going to overthrow the election. That left great bitterness. Then we, had, of course, had the Al Franken election in 2008. Again, every few years, we seem to have a signature race, which exposes the weaknesses on our election administration and also the potential for fraud. In Minnesota in 2008, The final margin, after several recounts and eight months of legal battles, and the seat was even left vacant for that period of time, the margin was 312 votes, Al Franken winning over Norm Coleman. That election actually had significant historical implications, because at the 2009, the Democratic Party and the Obama administration was trying to push Obamacare through the Senate. They succeeded on Christmas Eve, 2 a.m. in the morning by just getting the 60 votes to break a filibuster. Al Franken provided the 60th vote. He had been sworn in a few months earlier. And it is generally conceded that Obamacare would not have passed in its current form if Al Franken had not been there. Now, after Franken was sworn in, so nothing can be certainly done about this, nor would I suggest that, after Al Franken was sworn in, an independent watchdog group released its findings, which have not been contested, that 1,100 felons at a minimum voted illegally in that election. And this goes beyond the disputes about how absentee ballots were counted, whether there was equal protection in terms of using one standard to count an absentee ballot in one county versus a different standard in another county. 1,100 felons voted illegally. We don't know how they voted because it's a secret ballot. But when Fox News interviewed a bunch of them, nine out of 10 said Al Franken. And the various academic studies I can refer you to that would indicate that that population probably leaned in a certain direction. So the election has been tainted. And this, again, has left all kinds of ill feeling and suspicion in the state of Minnesota. In fact, this November, Minnesota will be voting in a statewide referendum on a constitutional amendment to have voter ID and various other ballot protections written into the Constitution. When George W. Bush was inaugurated as president in 2000, over 40% of the population felt his election was illegitimate or tainted. I don't want that to happen again, regardless of who wins in 2012. I think there are things that can be done between now and election day. There are things that are being done that can increase the chances that we have an efficient, accurate, and fair election that people have confidence in. It was the Supreme Court in an Arizona case upholding that state's voter identification law that said measures to improve election integrity, to provide for identification, are important because the legitimacy of a democracy is in part based on the confidence people have in their election outcomes and that therefore they are willing to allow people with whom they disagree with to hold political power after a fair election. If you undermine that, you undermine the basis of our democracy. And the Supreme Court also, of course, in the Crawford case in 2008, said that the we should not just look at the incidence of voter fraud, because I know there are various academic studies out there that purport to say there is no voter fraud. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should not just look at the incidence of it, but that the understanding that in a close race, any amount of voter fraud can make a difference, and Voter fraud is almost impossible to detect in many circumstances. You don't know how much there is. Therefore, deterring it is an appropriate function of government. Now, as for the studies that show that there is no voter fraud, I know there was a News 21 study, and it was the first that purported to try to capture all of the prosecutions out there. I think it was deeply flawed. We can go into that. Most voter fraud studies that you've seen that show that voter fraud is less likely to occur than lightning strikes have looked at federal and state prosecutions. But we have 3,156 counties in this country. Almost all of the prosecutions are not the county level. No comprehensive study has ever been done of how many voter fraud prosecutions have been at the county level. In addition, prosecutors have been very loath to follow cases of voter fraud because they're inherently political. Many prosecutors are elected in political elections. And of course, it is very difficult to provide proof. And it is also very difficult to detect. The Pew Research Center had a survey out earlier this year. Two interesting findings. One out of eight voter registrations in this country are either invalid or contain major errors. That's 13%. That is significant. It also provides an inventory of votes It can't be manipulated, substituted for, or elsewise abused. The Pew Research Center also found there are almost 2 million dead people in our voter registration rolls. Now, I believe we should have respect for the dead. I do not believe we should have representation without respiration. (laughs) We have learned recently, and in several videos done by the um, guerrilla theater artist James O'Keefe, how easy it is to commit voter registration fraud and voter fraud. In April, in the Democratic primary in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, Eric Holder's precinct, he had lived in that precinct for 32 years, the Attorney General of the United States. Um, He had voted frequently in that precinct, but not in primary elections. Washington, D.C. primaries tend not to be all that important, you might have noticed. So a 22-year-old kid, a white kid, with an earring and a scraggly beard, walked into the polling place and said, do you have an Eric Holder at such-and-such terrace? And the immediate response of the polling official was, oh, yes, here it is, here's your ballot. Well, the kid obviously was not going to commit a crime. He was not there to commit a crime. He was there to prove a point with a video camera. He said, well, I really would prefer to show my ID. He said, oh, no, no ID is necessary. No ID is necessary. We don't ask for that. He said, well, I really feel com- more com- would feel more comfortable if I showed you my ID, but it's out in the car. I'll go back and get it, and I'll be back faster than you can be furious.
0: <laughs>
1: well, Eric Holder laughed this off, but I submit it made an important point. He could easily have voted in Eric Holder's name, and no one would have known. Eric Holder didn't vote in primaries. He wouldn't have checked. He wasn't about to come in. If someone else on the list was dead and hadn't been removed from the rolls, what are the odds that that person would have complained? (laughs) Now, I'm not here to say that voter impersonation fraud or fraud by uh, non-citizens or fraud by people voting across state lines is important, but is important as important as other types of fraud. Absentee ballot fraud, I agree, is the most significant, and I think that we need to combat both. We also need to clean up our voter registration rolls. But again, this is these laws and these suggestions, properly administered and with outreach, I think can not only prove an important deterrent to voter fraud, but can also increase public confidence in our elections and also provide us with a better voter registration list. In conclusion, I would say this. I know that there are concerns about disenfranchisement. I take those seriously. But I think that they have to be fought on the basis of real evidence and real statistics rather than speculation. And Hans, I think, can go into exactly what the court record is as to whether disenfranchisement is likely or common and also how much people lack an ID. Um, I will tell you right now that I think I'm disappointed in the quality of the debate on this issue I'm disappointed in the number of lawsuits filed against these, because if the argument is that people should have an ID to vote, well, let's get people an ID. You know, you can't participate in the mainstream of American life with an ID right now. You can't go to the doctor. You can't cash a check. You can't travel effectively. You can't get a job. You have to prove you're a citizen to get a job. You have to show an ID. You have to Show an ID to get a benefit. In fact, you have to show an ID to get Sudafed at the prescription counter at the drugstore. You have to get an ID for everything. Andrew Young, who was the former Atlanta mayor and former UN ambassador, confidant of Martin Luther King, told me, I think Georgia's outreach effort to get people an ID as part of their voter ID law (laughs) is entirely appropriate. They're sending mobile vans out to get people an ID. I say that's a good thing. Let's get people an ID. I only wish that a small portion of the money spent on high powered lawyers fighting these cases and the publicity machine which purports to claim that there is no voter fraud, if a portion of that could be spent on actually getting people ID, maybe we could solve the problem. I think that's the more important thing. I think we should have aggressive outreach efforts so that every American, if possible, can have an ID because you can't be part of the mainstream of American life without it. And lastly, the claim, of course, has to is always made there is no voter fraud. And I'll cl- conclude with this. A couple days ago, a Mexican national drug dealer who had been deported from the country re-entered the country. He was indicted on several counts of crimes. One of them was voter registration fraud, another was actual voter fraud. The executive assistant, the top executive assistant, the chief of staff to Washington, D.C.'s mayor, had to resign because she had committed voter fraud. She had voted in both Maryland and in Washington, D.C. The Democratic congressional nominee for Maryland's first congressional district had to leave her position because she had voted several times in the same elections in both Florida and Maryland. A few years ago, a former congressman from Pennsylvania was caught, uh, shall we say, providing too much assistance to Alzheimer's disease patients in a nursing home and had to plead guilty to voter fraud. If people of that kind of standing in the community will do it, who else is willing to take the risk? But of course, we are told there is no voter fraud. We're told non-citizens don't vote. Four days ago in Iowa, three non-citizens were picked up and sent to jail because they had voted illegally, two Canadians and one Mexican. We are told there is no voter fraud. Well, I'm here to tell you there is. I'm going to tell you this may be like an iceberg with one-tenth above the surface and nine-tenths below the surface. In any event, some reasonable attempts to deter people from committing voter fraud, some reasonable attempts to clean up our election lists, some reasonable attempts to make sure absentee ballots are not misused are entirely appropriate. Now, there are concerns about disenfranchisement, and again, I take them seriously, and we need to have as much of an outreach effort as possible. But I think we can accomplish something, two things at the same time. When Chris Dodd, who was the Democratic co-sponsor of the Help America Vote Act, the last bipartisan piece of legislation in this area that passed in 2002, when he was asked what the legislation did, he said, it makes it easy to vote and hard to cheat. We can do both. We're America. Well, that's my position too. We can make it easy to vote and hard to cheat. We have two civil rights in this country when it comes to voting. One is to make sure that no one is intimidated from voting, blocked from voting, artificially prevented from voting. We fought a great civil rights struggle in the 60s to get rid of literacy tests and poll taxes and artificial barriers to voting. We need to preserve those gains. But there's also another civil right. As the Supreme Court pointed out in the Arizona case, you can be just as (coughs) disenfranchised in this country. You can have your vote canceled out. If someone votes twice, someone is voting who shouldn't be voting, an illegal alien, a felon who doesn't have their rights back, uh, someone who doesn't even exist. You can lose your civil right to vote that way, too. We need to preserve and protect both civil rights. Thank you.
0: So I'll just introduce our uh, next guest uh, from over here. Uh, the co- John's co-author is a person who has ex- a lot of experience, practical experience in policy making and the debates around policy on these issues. Hans von Spakovsky is senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation and a former member of the Federal Election Commission. He served as an election official in uh, both Georgia and Virginia and previously enforced federal voting rights laws at the U.S. Department of Justice as counsel to the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights. Hans?
2: Thank you, John. uh, going off something that John said, you know, he started talking about some of the more recent cases of, of voter fraud that appeared in, in the press, and those are not in the book. <laughs> but I, I have to say, I, you know, I take voter fraud very seriously, but I, sometime I, sometimes I'm laughing as I read these stories, because, you know, if you read the New York Times or the Washington Post, you would get the impression that voter fraud never curbs. And in the past month, there's been case after case. Uh, John didn't mention that uh, two weeks ago, a state legislator in Arkansas resigned from office after being convicted of voter fraud along with three other individuals. And the voter fraud that he committed was in an election that he won by eight votes. And in fact, I think uh, yesterday there was an announcement of a further indictment of five more people in that very same case. And that case illustrates a key issue, and that is that voter fraud can make the difference in a close election. And what have we been having a lot of in the last 10 years in this country? Close elections. Uh, what we really wanted to do with this book was to uh, produce and illustrate stories of real voter fraud that has occurred, cases that have been prosecuted, many cases where it did make the difference in the outcome of the election. Uh, another case like that that we talk about in the book is Tennessee, 2005, not that long ago, a state senate race won by 13 votes in that case that was overturned again because of what voter fraud, including people uh, who were uh, voting who were registered at vacant lots, people who were voting who were real individuals but they didn't actually live in the district where they were voting. And in fact, uh, uh, voting by dead uh, voters, including uh, a gentleman who is a famous folk artist from Tennessee whose works are in the Smithsonian and who had died six weeks before he supposedly showed up at his polling place and voted. Um, Is that a continuing problem? Yes, Uh, I'm sure you didn't read in the media coverage of the trial that was held a month ago over the Texas voter ID law, that one of the pieces of evidence that Texas presented to a federal court here in Washington was the fact that um, 219 individuals had voted in the May primary in Texas, who their records later showed were actually deceased. Uh, Is that a problem? Well, you know, I think it is, uh, particularly because, again, one of the other pieces of evidence that um, Texas presented was how many close legislative races they had had in the last um, 10 years, many races decided by less than 100 votes. So is it an issue? Well, you know, I think it is. Um, You know, one of the other things that we do in this uh, uh, book is to talk about the recommended solutions for these kind of problems. And when we go through and list the many, different kinds of cases uh, and the different kinds of fraud that are committed, and it's everything ranging from absentee ballot fraud, which a Florida investigation some years ago called the tool of choice for uh, vote thieves, um, to the intimidation of elderly voters and disabled voters in nursing homes and elsewhere, the the kind of action that got this former congressman, I think it was was Austin Austin Murphy indicted and convicted in Pennsylvania for uh, voter fraud, to uh, people impersonating voters at the polls, people who are dead, who have moved away. Now, you'll constantly hear that this doesn't happen. Well, listen, one of the reasons that Georgia was a leader in passing a photo ID law uh, back in 2005 was because in 2000, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution published an interesting story. They got a hold of the uh, voter registration list for the state of Georgia. And then they got a hold of it was either a commercial database or it may have been the Social Security Master Index, which also uh, lists people who have died across the country. And they compared the two lists. And they found that in the prior 20 years, uh, 5,000 people who were dead had voted uh, at the polling place in Georgia. Uh, That was not a surprise to me. Georgia has a long history of voter fraud, and in fact, uh, one of the reasons that Jimmy Carter uh, signed on to uh, actually recommending photo ID back when his uh, 2005 Commission on Federal Election Reform came out with its report was because, a lot of people don't know this, but um, he had his first election for the state legislature in Georgia stolen by voter fraud, and in fact, he had to go to court To overturn the election, Uh, a court found that, in fact, fraud had occurred in his election. People were convicted of doing this. But but the only reason he got into the state legislature was because he contested the election, and they discovered the fraud that had occurred in that election. Now, one of the things you will constantly hear is that um, some of the solutions, like voter ID, are intended to suppress the vote of uh, minorities, and particularly Democrats. Now, you know, it's hard to think that that was the intention when Rhode Island passed its voter ID law. Rhode Island is a one-party state, basically, it's controlled by the Democratic Party. uh, One of the chief sponsors of the voter ID bill in uh, Rhode Island was an African American Democratic senator. And he has written extensively about why he sponsored this. And one of the reasons was that he and his family have personally seen and observed voter fraud. And they passed the law uh, and it was signed by the independent governor of the state. Um, Kansas is another example. This in Kansas. uh, Their voter ID law, uh, the Democrats in the state legislature, a majority of them voted to pass it. And the idea that this is intended to somehow suppress Democratic votes. Well, you all may recall, uh, I don't, I'm not sure how many years ago it was, some, some, a liberal wrote a book called What's the Matter with Kansas? Talking about what a horribly conservative state it was. The other reason we know that those suppression tales are untrue is because uh, unlike the speculation that you get from organizations like the Brennan Center about this, Uh, We have the actual data from states that have had photo ID laws in place now for a number of years. Um, Georgia and Indiana, also Arizona, passed photo ID laws starting in 2004, 2005. They were wrapped up in litigation uh, for a number of years. But in Georgia, for example, their photo ID law was upheld by a federal court, was also upheld by a state court, and in 2008... It was in place for the first time in a presidential election. Now, everyone knows that was an election in which we had a record turnout across the country. Turnout went up uh, across the country. Uh, We had the highest turnout in 30 years, but in fact, the turnout in Georgia went up even more. Georgia had one of the largest increases in turnout of any state in the United States. Uh, I was in a debate not too long ago, and uh, my debate partner said, yes, well... North Carolina, which doesn't have photo ID law, they had a bigger increase in turnout than Georgia. That's right, North Carolina was the number one state in the country in terms of turnout. Georgia was number two. (laughs) Way ahead of, of many other states without photo ID. But Georgia is a voting rights state. They're covered under Section 5. And so unlike a lot of states that don't keep track of this, Georgia actually keeps track of the race of all of their registered voters. You know, they know exactly how many whites, how many blacks, how many Hispanics have voted in every single one of their elections. And these certified returns from the state of Georgia show that in the 2008 election, when the photo ID law was in place for the first time, um, the Hispanic turnout was 140 percent over 2004. The turnout of black voters in the state was 42 percent over 2004. The increase in white turnout was only 8%. Now, I've said, you know, the increase there was actually larger than in other states, but I still have people say to me, well, you really can't count 2008 because Barack Obama was on the ballot. He was a big draw, particularly for uh, minority voters. That's certainly true. But if you look at the 2010 congressional race, when Barack Obama was not on the ballot, what happened in Georgia? Well, in 2010, There was an increase in the turnout of Hispanic voters of 66.5% over 2006, the last midterm congressional election. And there was an increase in turnout of black voters of 44.2%. That's actually slightly larger than in the 2008 uh, election. So once again, you can see that uh, it was a very large increase in turnout. Now, another state where we know the results of photo ID is Indiana. In fact, you know, Indiana passed what the Supreme Court said was the strictest photo ID law in the country. Lawsuits were filed. It ended up before the United States Supreme Court. And in 2008, uh, the Supreme Court issued a decision upholding the law, saying that it was not a burden on voters. It was not an unreasonable burden. In fact, it was uh, a legitimate measure of state governments to try to uh, maintain and ensure the integrity of the election process and also to... Keep public confidence in the election process. Um, Indiana also had one of the largest increases in turnout in the 2008 election when it was in place for the first time, of any any uh, state in the country. In the general election, the Democratic turnout in the state was the largest had the largest increase of any state in the United States, and over eight percent increase over the prior election. And guess who won Indiana in the 2008 election? Barack Obama did. First Democrat to win that state, I think, in 30 years since 1964. Uh, The number of blacks who voted in the election went up dramatically. And again, if you look at the 2010 midterm election, Uh, even more black voters voted in Indiana than in the 2008 election, which was a banner year for turnout. So we know this is not a problem. Now, the other thing you've heard is that there are huge numbers of Americans without photo ID. Okay, We we know that's not true. Uh, There have been a number of surveys done by legitimate organizations like American University that basically come out to show that it's probably about one-half of 1% of individuals who, who don't have an ID. And we also know that's the case. Why? Because in states like Georgia that have passed photo ID, they have provided a law that says free photo ID for anyone who doesn't have one. The number of people in Georgia over the last six years that this law has been in place who have applied for photo ID is a tiny number. It has averaged less than five one-hundredths of one percent of the registered voters each year. And that's because, as John said, you simply cannot function in our society today without a voter ID. Uh, l- let me end on this note. There, there, are, there are other recommendations in the book. Uh, we also believe you should have an ID requirement for absentee ballots. We believe that you should have proof of citizenship uh, when you register to vote. But the important thing to remember uh, is is this. Um, This should not be a partisan issue. Uh, Both parties should be interested in election integrity. And we know the American people are, because while there have been a lot of people, leaders in one particular party who have come out against these measures, their constituents do not agree with them. The polling on this is actually very remarkable. Um, Voter ID, for example, is supported by the vast majority of the American people across all racial, ethnic, and party lines. And the vast majority of Americans also across all racial, ethnic, and party lines believe that we should be concerned about voter, uh, about voter fraud, because they think it's a serious issue. Uh, we should take the steps to make sure that we have elections with integrity, because what we want to have happen the day after the election is this. Um, The losing candidate, we want that losing candidate to say, you know, I lost the election, but it was a fair election. And I'm not going to contest it. And everyone believes that the person that got the most votes is the winner. Thanks.
0: Uh, my colleague, Jim Harper, reminded me that, uh, unless I do the intros from up here, uh, that the in- folks on the Internet don't know who the speaker was. That was Hans von Spakovsky, the, the co-author of our book today. We're now going to turn to our commentators. I'm, I'm delighted to say that uh, a Cato adjunct fellow, Jeffrey Milliot, will be our first commentator. He is the Middlebush Professor of Social Science and full professor in the Department of Economics uh, and the Truman School of Public Affairs of the University of Missouri at Columbia. He has his PhD from Stanford. He has written widely both in the popular press and in the academic world, uh, is widely published. Uh, and has held several faculty positions. Just a personal note on Jeff on a couple of things about him. One is what I really like about him is that Jeff brings academic rigor to try to address questions that really concern the American people. So you don't have, uh, it's not the sort of uh, academic theorizing, though he does that too, but he also is interested in and tries to pursue in a rigorous way uh, questions that are before us as a public. And the second thing I would say about Jeff is when I'm sitting around in my office studying some social science, and social science is like many things in politics, it can be very complicated and somewhat confusing. Uh, and I want to figure out, you know, something beyond my powers about whether it's, a conclusion is correct or well-formed or well-researched. The first person always comes to mind is, uh, I'll, I'll drop an email to Jeff Milio He's a guy that calls balls and strikes, and so I, I wanted him here today to call some balls and strikes for us. Jeff?
3: It was such a nice introduction I'm afraid to open my mouth. Uh, Saying that an academic has held many faculty appointments is a a euphemism for can't hold a job. Uh, So so I I read the author's book. And I also read another recent book that's come out uh, by somebody who has very different views. Rick Hasen has written a book called The Voting Wars. Um, and what's remarkable about the two two books, if you ignore the ad hominem in Rick's book, did you kill his dog, or I don't know what we the never, issue we, is? We, we never mentioned it. <laughs> yeah, we, we I never know. mentioned him at all in the book. Um, but if you if you kind of cut through to the substance, what's remarkable is from two very different perspectives, um, there is wide agreement that. Um, election administration is a, is a mess. There's bloated registration rolls. It's difficult to really accurately check uh, the validity of registrations. It's difficult to check whether uh, people who have voted uh, really should have. Um, Hassan focuses more on uh, partisan shenanigans at administration of elections. And so reading these, these two books, it really, I have to say, it, it restores my faith in government incompetence. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and so there is agreement out there across the spectrum that there are, there are some policy problems that need to be addressed. Um, and to, to cast it in a very broad stroke, the, the debate to, is really about whether we should focus more on access or more on security. And so the, the folks more on the left, the more progressive types, um, their view is accurately represented that voter fraud is something very rare, not a concern, doesn't really uh, overturn elections. They're more concerned about um, partisan election administrators trying to do things that might might affect elections. and And f- so for that reason, they focus more on access trying to make voting as easy as possible. Somebody shows up at the polls, the presumption should be that they're eligible to vote and we, we let them cast a vote. And maybe afterward, we'll check the registration and purge people out, but let's, let's make it easy for them to, to vote. Um, on, on the security side, uh, there's, there's, as you've heard, more of a focus on making sure that the right people are voting and let's stop those illegal, invalid ballots from being cast in the first place. Um, and I think one thing that's necessary to understand is for a lot of folks who are more on the access side of the argument, they don't even like voter registration. And, and so anything that facilitates the enforcement of registration laws is, is considered illegitimate as well. And I think you have to understand that to understand part of the part of the debate because a lot of the kinds of reforms that emphasize security would also catch up people who are not registered. And if you don't believe registration is a legitimate kind of exercise, uh, then you don't like those kinds of security measures uh, either. Um, What I liked about the book is that the authors at the end talk about a number of different uh, policy fixes, and so I want to sort of invite them to talk more about the solutions when they when they speak again. Um, The again, the folks like Rick Hassan, Ned Foley at Ohio State who Uh, have a different view, their policy solution tends to be, let's find nonpartisans and give them a lot of authority and discretion to administer elections. I know, they're cute when they talk like that, aren't they? Uh, So, uh, you know, the American system, we try not to rely on angels to administer things and and want more checks and balances. And, uh, And so when we're thinking about added security measures, there should also be some consideration, well, what about those, you know, the false positives that get caught? You go to vote and somebody does a list match and and we say, oh, you know what? We don't think you're a valid voter. It ought to be easy to correct right then and there. And so there there are some differences across states in the way laws are administered, Uh, so identification requirements. Some states have very strict laws. Indiana's probably the strictest, where if you don't have a current photo ID, you can't cast a regular ballot. But as of, I believe it's 2004 implemented, the Help Help America Vote Act, uh, you can cast a provisional ballot. And so you sign, say who you are, and you put a ballot in an envelope, And then there's some procedure for checking that. In Indiana, it's the most restrictive. You have to come back with the proper ID. In other states, Florida, there's a signature match. So you don't have to come back. And it's easier uh, for that vote to be counted. Other states don't force you to cast a provisional ballot right at that step. There's some problem there. Well, you can sign an affidavit that you are who you say you are, and you can then cast a regular ballot and then Presumably, those pieces of paper get put in a pile and checked at some point, Uh, although I think what everyone agrees with here is that process isn't as careful and thorough as it it might be. Uh, So there's a variety of ways of doing ID checks, and some of them are uh, going to have more false positives and prevent more people from voting, and some are going to have fewer uh, but let more more things through. Um, and so that needs to be part of the, it's, it's not just a zero, one, do you check ID or not. Um, one of the things I wanted to point out is that uh, the authors talk a lot about fraud, voter fraud, voting fraud, and I think the emphasis on fraud does a bit of a disservice because there's more than just fraud out there. There's, there's things that don't rise to the level of fraud, either because we can't prove it, or because it, it really doesn't. And, and so just to give you an idea of the number of illegal or invalid ballots that we currently know of, even with not so great election administration and, and not a lot of vigilance looking for them. In 2010, uh, there were 91 million ballots cast. And of those, about a little over 400,000 were rejected. Um, about 75,000 of those rejected. They were absentee ballots that came in late. Put those aside. So you're left with about 350,000 ballots rejected because people weren't registered, they weren't eligible to vote, uh, double votes and and the like, uh, or improper ID. So these are numbers that come from the Election Assistance Commission surveys of states, and not all states provide information, so take this as a minimum in terms of how many bad, votes were counted and, and for and for what reason um but there's a fair number of absentee ballots and provisional ballots that are found to be invalid so people do go to the polls they cast a provisional ballot and uh and it turns out that their signature doesn't match uh, now that could be a mistake it could be because they weren't who they said they were we, we don't really know for sure, but but these things um, do exist, uh, and it doesn't all have to be uh, fraud. Now, uh, the, the critics of photo ID laws especially, but, but concerns about voter fraud in general, would tend to make arguments like, we don't see many convictions relative to the number of votes cast, this is just such a small probability occurrence, the odds of it actually affecting elections are so small that in a cost-benefit weighting, we shouldn't care about this. Um, When you look at these other numbers, they're a little bit bigger, but you could probably still make those kinds of arguments. The the question is how these things are distributed in different precincts, and do they rise when there's a close election or not? And and to be honest, those kinds of studies haven't been done. you know, I think the authors have taken as their task to say there is fraud, there are shenanigans, and so here's some, some solutions. And that's different from saying that the c- benefits of these policies outweigh uh, the costs. The other um, concern that's out there is that, again, with photo ID especially, that it's going to disenfranchise a lot of people, and as has been represented, um, there are a number of studies out there And uh, there's a mixed set of results, but if you screen on quality, there's no evidence that there's going to be some large-scale disenfranchisement. It's just not true. And how could it be? Most people have ID. The kinds of folks who don't have ID are often not registered and don't want to vote anyway. As a marginal additional cost of voting, this is something that's very small and only affects a few people. And so in, in terms of the statistical studies, our best estimate of the number of people who do not vote because of ID requirements would be zero. Um, now, that's an estimate. And there's bounds around it. And um, in, in fact, you could uh, some evidence suggests we actually see increases in voter turnout. I, I wouldn't go um, say that the descriptive statistics that Hans uh, brought out, Uh, You know studies where you control for other things you're going to find much modest potential increases But actually some studies suggest some some modest potential increases. We'll get to why that might be in a second Um, but the looking at this from a cost-benefit perspective is uh, Not the right way to do it because voting is a right and so we want to put our thumb on the scale when we're considering rights we don't just weigh cost benefits narrowly if one person is denied their rights wrongly uh, we want to say that's a really big harm to society and so even if there's just a few people who can't vote because of these id requirements that should be a serious concern but that argument bites both ways because even just a few illegal ballots cancels out somebody's legal ballot and so that's also a serious concern. So you take this at the level of these are these are rights we're talking about. Um, you don't you don't want to just look at the large end statistical studies and say what are the costs and and benefits. But I do want to say the authors are correct in pointing out there's there's no good evidence that lots of people are deterred from voting from from these laws. But how is it? how could it be that there might actually even be an increase? Um, the idea is in social science, we're trying to look for treatment effects. What's the causal effect of some change in policy on voter turnout? And the treatment of photo ID laws is not just that people have to show ID. It's that there was a controversy and voting became more interesting and partisans on both sides became engaged and, you know, work to get, voters to the polls. And so it could be that as time passes, not only are more states going to be adopting and implementing reforms, uh, but maybe some of the uh, increase in turnout that resulted because of controversies might dissipate. So I'm not quite sure what's going to happen in the future. Um, But it's not crazy that in the short term, we've actually seen some increase in turnout, including among disadvantaged populations. Trust and confidence was mentioned, and that's another possible explanation for why turnout increased, and if true, that would mean a more uh, lasting effect on turnout. Um, I'm dubious about this one, just because I've studied institutional effects on trust and confidence in other contexts, and uh, people just aren't that sensitive to stimuli when it comes to their political behavior and opinions. I mean, how many of us change our mind, really? Uh, and so you know when it comes to political reforms, people uh, all the time appeal to the integrity of the democratic process, whether it 's arguments for term limits or for campaign finance reform or for voter identification reforms or for more convenience voting early voting abs- and easier absentee voting and it's it's uh, not many people look and when you look you don 't find much going on when it comes to institutional changes and changes in people 's trust and confidence in government so i, I I'm dubious that that's a causal mechanism that affects turnout, but you don't know until you look at it carefully. And um, it's something that I've looked at not carefully, but um, uh, I think it needs to be looked at more carefully. Another claim is that well, Republicans like these ID laws and they like focusing on security of ballots because if you make it a little bit harder for folks to vote, the kinds of people who will be deterred are the ones that are gonna vote for Democrats. I don't know of any credible studies that show any partisan advantage. Uh, And partly, again, because there's no decent studies out there. Uh, And so it's an area for more research. But it shouldn't be taken as something that's um, self-evident, as any means. Another um, claim that the authors made was about public opinion polls. and, And here, they're absolutely right in terms of no matter who takes these polls, no matter how you frame them, Voter ID laws tend to be very popular uh, among all sorts of people. Now less so among Democrat constituents, but, uh, but they tend to be very popular. Um, again, when we're dealing with rights, I don't think we should take that into consideration because the general public really doesn't care about the rights of other people. Right? It's also very popular that people should speak English to be allowed to vote. And it's very popular to have lots of restrictions on campaign finance or on free speech. Uh, But when we're talking about rights, popularity alone doesn't matter. But the popularity definitely explains why we see these laws. You don't need some conspiracy theory. You don't need need to make arguments that these are sort of the second coming of poll taxes. People actually make these arguments. It's nothing like a poll tax to ask somebody to show ID. Right? It's not a huge barrier for for most folks. Uh, The only thing you need to understand about the politics of ID laws is that they're really popular and politicians look for really popular things to stand behind. And the arguments against ID laws potentially are difficult to make. Right, If the way in which arguments uh, Democrats wanted to argue against these ID laws was more about rights and, that, and, and they didn't exaggerate and were to just say, you know, there, there's actually a couple of people out there that have unusual circumstances and it's hard for them to vote. And unless we take that into consideration and have some sort of safety mechanism for those folks, um, we're going to be denying them their, their right to vote. Um, that's a hard argument to make because the general public just doesn't care about those people uh, and doesn't care about the rights of others. So instead, they make an argument that's easier and fires up their base. Right That this is a racist conspiracy to try to massively depress the vote um, and and, you know, that's just a clear and obvious exaggeration. But it also makes it a really vicious policy argument. And so while I pointed to some studies that could be done, don't hold your breath because we academics, uh, are, are uh, shrinking flowers and we don't like to study things that people are going to say you're a bad person if you find the wrong results. So uh, I'm not sanguine about lots of informative studies coming out on this, this issue.
0: I don't know if you noticed, the strike he threw or called right at the end was, most people don't care about the rights of others. right? It's very <laughs> Actually, there's a lot of data that shows that. Our last speaker today will be my colleague, Jim Harper, who's Director of Information Policy Studies here at Cato. And in that uh, department, uh, Jim works to adapt law and policy to the unique problems of the information age in areas such as privacy, telecommunications, intellectual property, and security. He was a founding member of the Department of Homeland Security's Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee. And he recently co-edited the book, Terrorizing Ourselves, How US Counterterrorism Policy is Failing and How to Fix It. And he has with him his first book, uh, which was uh, Identity Crisis, How Identification is Overused and Misunderstood, which uh, Cato published. Please welcome my colleague, Jim Harper.
4: Thank you, John. Professor Emilio is a hard act to follow, given the, the care and erudition that he brings to the, to the subject matter. It's not really my forte. Um, but I'll, but I'll, let me start, that was a joke, by the way. Let me start <laughs> with, uh, with how, I, how I arrived at this issue. And it, it, it was around the time that I um, had finished writing and re- had recently published my book, Identity Crisis, How Identification is Overused and Misunderstood. That might signal where I'm going with my talk, even. Around the, around the time of its publication, the Carter-Baker Commission came out with its findings. Uh, it, it said there's no evidence of extensive fraud in U.S. elections or multiple voting. Um, but more importantly to me, it said that we should go ahead and implement a voter ID system, and it specifically cited using Real ID, which it was the nation's recently passed national ID law for administering uh, the, the voting system, and that had me concerned I I sort of treat uh, the national ID issue as my house. And when people advocate for a national ID, I treat them as though they are unwelcome guests sitting on my couch, (laughs) drinking milk out of the carton. Now, John Funn and Hans von Spakovsky are nowhere near that role. They might be standing in the foyer or the kitchen. I don't think they quite have the refrigerator door open, um, and they do not advocate for a national ID system for, for implementing voter ID. But it's in, it's in the area, and that's what, that's what has me interested in this issue, though I, I hasten to say not expert. Um, I, I, I was very interested. I went and got a little, um, got ahead on things by going to the Heritage presentation that they did last week. And, and in reading the book, um, I have a critique or a concern, and that is, it's something that Professor Emilio referred to as well—was um, um, rather broad use of terminology. Voter fraud, with reference to um, one of a number of potential irregularities and possible frauds, though unproven. In my discussion of this issue, I broke, I, I, for, for ease uh, of conversation, I broke things down into voter fraud and election fraud. Voter fraud, generally referring to the casting of ballots improperly, inaccurately, whatever, whatever specifically it may be, election fraud being something wrong with the count or the reporting, and that actually helps a lot of people start to. If you start to divide up these issues, you go, okay, well, um, and as a general matter, voter fraud is going to be kind of costly and time-consuming per vote that that is changed or, or misrepresented. Election fraud is the efficient way to do it if you want to steal an election. I think that's that's I, I, as a more of a theoretician than a than a uh, statistics person. Um, that's why I think that election fraud is a, probably a greater concern generally than 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 voter fraud. But I read the book with an eye to to uh, finding what specifically the problems are that they cite in the book. Um, there are no lack of problems that they cite in the book, and it's it's a worthwhile read for that very reason. I, I'll I'll share with you the spreadsheet that I began. Uh, producing as i read the first third of, <laughs> as i read the first third of the book trying to categorize the varieties of of election irregularity where they occurred and i and want to copy yeah, we want to copy, so want so a so copy. Right. <laughs> this is the first third um, it wasn't really working very well so during the second third i went to post it notes and uh, d- during the final part of the book i was actually at the gym on the on the exercise cycle and just bent the corners of the pages so so that's your that's your demonstration of of uh, of how i looked into this uh, Attempting method but not really succeeding at, at a methodical review. What we get at the very least though is the, vari- the real variety of irregularities that they highlight, which are, which are um, genuine but varied uh, concerns for the, for the person interested in voting and in election integrity. They include, and I'll try to be brief because we should get to discussion, uh, petition signature fraud, that is in qualifying of candidates, registration fraud, Including, you know, bad address, incorrect address, or, or you know, like, a not a not a real location, or outside of jurisdiction, uh, wrong age. Sometimes too young. Sometimes the age is insanely old and couldn't possibly be uh, disqualified registrants, uh, like like um, felons, illegal immigrants, or other non-citizens being registered. Uh, the maintenance of voter rolls is is clearly a problem where you also have bad address and age information, multiple registrations. Or multiple jurisdictions—that is, the same person being re- bringing on the rolls in multiple jurisdictions—and of course, the one that makes for sort of many great stories, which is the deceased on the rolls. And for some reason, I don't know why, uh, the, the the maintenance of voter rolls is is quite poor in many in many locations. Well documented in the book. Um, voter fraud, as a category, includes many different um, subsets. I suppose impersonation fraud—that is, literally someone going in and saying, "I am." The person qualified to vote, uh, not being that actual person, uh, fictitious name or you know pseudonym, pseudonym, voting, creating an identity in order to vote, double voting, uh, absentee ballot fraud, which probably should should be in a category of its own because it has uh, because it has all the characteristics of all all the the voting processes, but is distinct in its ways. Uh, vote buying, and also vote discouragement, and then in the election fraud uh, category, you have count fraud. Uh, ballot box stuffing, that kind of thing. And perhaps you might call it reporting fraud. There's one instance they cite in the book um, where apparently some, some machines were delivered to a place where nobody was voting to be picked up at the end of the day and returned to the, to the count area uh, in order to uh, perpetrate the appearance of people having voted uh, on these machines, which obviously would throw off the, the vote count. So that's a lot of different problems with a lot of different solutions. That are, hard to, uh, that are hard to come up with. And I've, I've you know, personally sh- literally shied away from, from the voting issues and voter integrity because there are so many different problems involved in trying to register people, determine the jurisdiction in which they live, determine their age, determine that they're not felons disqualified from voting, determine that they're not illegal immigrants or, or otherwise um, non-citizens then administer them coming to a particular place on a particular day, prove who they wa- are with sufficient assurance, or mail-in ballots, or vote online, or all these other things. It's, a, it's an issue that I highly recommend to someone else to tackle, and I will say yay or nay on how well you've done. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, uh, so uh, so uh, the voter ID requirement, though, is what um, public policy has fixed on. We have voter ID requirements uh, being, being put in law. Uh, the general tone of the book refers to I mean, the book refers to voter ID many times in the general tone of obviously you've heard is it favors voter ID. Um, voter ID would help with some parts, some of these, of these problems. Um, the clearest and easiest example is to, to thwart impersonation fraud. And I think that's probably why it has the political appeal that Professor Emilio refers to, is, a, is that a, a person who's voted can imagine, oh yes, you walk in, you, you plop down your ID, They check it. It's a more more assured process. It it almost certainly is. Uh, Double voting could be thwarted with with, of of, of varying kinds. can be thwarted with ID, though it might require policy changes, because some states are indifferent to whether you have an ID in a different state. A lot of snowbirds still live in the upper Midwest or the Northeast during the summertime and go down to Florida or other southern climes uh, in in wintertime. a vote, an ID requirement could help to thwart uh, Ill, Ill, illegal aliens voting, um, though some states issue IDs or, or licenses to, to non-citizens, so there's some policy changes that would go toward that. It's reminiscent of a policy that I have a lot of concerns about and others, too. The E-Verify system, where all, all new, imp- new hires are supposed to be run through a database. Uh, at the Department of Homeland Security and the Social Security Administration to determine whether or not the, the numbers and information they provided matches up. Uh, that's a, that's a, a, a federal background check system, which may seem like it does a good thing for us now, but would grow over time, I imagine, as all government programs do, into federal background checks for um, lots of other things. And so I do do want to just sort of call out the ills of a national ID, to the extent that this policy push uh, adds fuel to the national ID fire, uh, I counsel people's caution, frankly. Uh, a national ID, should everybody have a national ID, and, and, you know, John said, you have to have an ID for everything. Um, I've flown without ID, and it was actually, actually because of the way the airport at SFO was set up, I actually got through faster by not bringing an ID, because the, the line for people without IDs is a lot shorter than the line for people with IDs, <laughs> but that's a story for another day. Uh, if everybody had a national ID, we'd all we'd all be asked to show our, our IDs much more often. Obviously, with technology, you, there would be a quick swipe when you entered uh, an office building, when you went to the pharmacy, all these other things, and then data about you would be collected by any organization that happened to, to throw that that card reader in front of you. We're already plunging quickly toward a surveillance society to to overdramatize a little bit. We don't need to move there even more quickly by having a a national ID system, having everybody with an ID, carrying an ID, particularly a machine-readable ID. ID. But but more importantly to me, uh, a a national ID or a comprehensive ID system uh, really represents a transfer of power from the individual to governments. Because if the governments are the ones issuing the ID, they get to condition their issuance of ID on your comporting yourself in ways the government wants you to. So it would certainly start with innocuous things, like are you paid up on your parking tickets? Are you are you uh, square on your taxes, but might move into other things? And there's already, actually, a penalty in some jurisdictions in the, uh, Minnesota, if I remember correctly. But it's been a long time. And you'll lose your driver's license for failing to uh, shovel your, your, your the snow off your walk. Uh, so th- that's a small but important signal of what you get if you transfer power to government by having a national ID and requiring that ID uh, to be shown in, in exchange for access to things. Now now use of ID to control access is, al- uh, is already uh, widely, uh, widely in existence, but it's, it's been talked about expanding it to access to financial services, access to health care, uh, access to housing. It would be used to control access to guns and ammunition. I think a, a lot of people uh, of, a, of a libertarian and conservative bent uh, might be impressed by that. A national ID doesn't solve everything, but, but actually would result in, because of the value of breaking such a system, uh, would result in deepened high-tech identity frauds. So biometric identity fraud, things we haven't really encountered yet, would, would probably come along. So uh, I, did, I just want to sound those cautionary notes. Again, this is not, is not something that uh, the authors of this book advocate for but it's part of a, of a trend in society to, to use ID for just about every other thing. The, the parts of the book that I want to recommend to you that they, they don't, uh, don't advertise very much are, are what they say about the Justice Department. Uh, I did some oversight of the Environment and Natural Resources Division when I worked on Capitol Hill and found a similar culture to the, to, uh, to the Justice Department's uh, uh, Voting Rights Section, where the, the section seemed to be dedicated to particular outcomes rather than to the delivery of justice. And uh, some of the chapters refer to that. And and I think it's very good reading for those purposes alone if you don't recognize how uh, the incentive structures inside government sometimes work. I agree with with our authors that this this sort of fetish for easy voting is carrying policy in a lot of directions that that aren't helpful. It's it's, uh, uh, why it should be that we have better policy simply because more people went to vote, when actually you probably get better policy because fewer people who actually care go to vote. Uh, my own experience, and it's another thing that I bring to this, and I suppose makes me uh, 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 an or- originally a skeptic, but certainly, I think, open-minded to the, to the existence of all these problems. My own experience as a voter, as a young man, was to go down to the swim club four or five miles from my house and uh, walk in where I'd be met by the vote, uh, the vote administrators, who consisted of my mother, Mr. Neiman, my soccer coach, and some other lady who I didn't know. That made impersonation fraud particularly difficult. Um, <laughs> it was a relatively relatively small town, and my mom and Mr. Neiman both recognized me fairly well. Um, the, 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 the one issue that I hasten to add, I guess, I guess something that libertarians might particularly want to focus on, um, not mentioned in the book, though not because it's, uh, it's a, a concern they don't have, uh, is the most important election fraud of all. Uh, and that is the politician who says one thing in order to get elected and does something entirely different after he or she is elected. So I appreciate you hearing me out on those thoughts.
0: So in the time we have, let's go to questions and answers. Uh, all I can say is, if you want to ask a question, just raise your hand and then wait for the microphone to come to you so everyone else can hear. Please identify yourself, and if you wish to, identify an affiliation you have here. The gentleman in the back, please, could go first. And also, if you wanted to address one the question to one particular person or panelist, also say that.
5: Um, hi, I'm
0: Martin Wooster.
5: I- Either I have too many affiliations or I have no affiliations. (laughs) Um, I just have a general question. Maybe this is for Mr. Harper, but have the people who argue that there are poor and disenfranchised people who can't get an ID and it's a poll tax, do they also criticize... The overuse of ID for getting on airplanes, entering government buildings, and so forth, do they not make the connection, or
4: are they just happy that there are people who don't have IDs? <laughs> uh, well, my, my experience is that, the, that many of the people who argue with me against a national ID also argue against uh, against voter ID, so I don't I don't see any inconsistency uh, in the positions that they take. I do think uh, that the, the poll tax argument is is rather overwrought. So uh, I appreciate the question, but it's not. It's uh, my experience is that it's not uh, just a momentary uh, argument. Um, frankly, and it's it's obviously this is a matter worthy of study. Uh, it's consistent with my my understanding of ID and people's practices that there would be a a decent number of people who don't have IDs. Many people um, live in cities, never have cause to to get driver's licenses. There are many poor people, people who've lost the documentation necessary for getting IDs. As we make IDs stronger evidence of various things, including identity, the right to drive, uh, uh, legal presence in the country, etc., etc., it will get harder to get IDs. So this is a uh, ID is a difficult and interesting policy question that has a lot of facets to it.
0: I wonder
2: if you too. Well, I, I don't disagree. I, I mean, I, I don't know about the organizations that talk about national ID, Jim, but the organizations that have fought the hardest against voter ID, which are civil rights organizations, you know, the Advancement Project, the NAACP and others, uh, they say not a word about the fact that, for example, Uh, I travel a lot. You can't check into a hotel anywhere in the country without showing a government-issued photo ID. Now, they say, well, voting is a a civil right. Uh, You shouldn't have to show ID. Well, excuse me, but the Jim Crow laws weren't just about keeping people out of the polls to vote. The Jim Crow laws were also about public accommodation, like hotels. It was about public transportation. And yet they say not a word. You've heard no claims that the fact that hotels require you to show a photo ID is somehow a Jim Crow law and somehow discriminatory. You hear not a word from them about the fact that if you want to get into uh, the Justice Department to exercise your constitutional right under the First Amendment to, uh, quote, petition the government for redress of grievances, which is you know lobbying the government, you cannot get in without a, a photo ID. There, there are no claims there that that somehow... Uh, an issue. Or, but, but, or a but Hans,
1: there is the claim by the Attorney General of the United States who was asked by a broadcast journalist, well, doesn't someone have to show an ID to get into the Justice Department? He said, no, they don't. <laughs> and the, I mean, the jur- journalist literally was stupefied. They had nothing to say. And, the, and Holder went on to say, no, anybody can come in and see me anytime they want. They don't need an ID. I mean, what, what can you do? Would somebody just, I mean, I know he probably doesn't have to show an ID, but every, all of the rest of us do. Just real quick, Jim. And I, and I just one, one yeah, final point. Yeah. The, the disappointing thing, by the way, in, in terms of consistency here is this. The critics of these measures, they often will say there is no voter fraud, impersonation fraud, double voting fraud, illegal alien fraud, but they will agree there is absentee ballot fraud because the cases are too numerous to ignore. And I often have asked them, all right, will you discreetly, separate from all these other issues, do you support laws to improve absentee ballot counting and make sure there's less fraud? And I don't have any takers on that. So even in the area where they do acknowledge there's fraud, they seem to want to
4: take no remedial action. I'll just make a, a, a narrow point that's interesting to people like me, maybe, that, that uh, you don't need government-issued ID to check into hotels. You don't need government-issued ID for lots of things. I carry a privately-issued ID that kind of looks like something real and show that. To illustrate at least to myself, and now to you, that a lot of ID checking is purely ceremonial. It doesn't actually do anything, doesn't provide any security, but provides the appearance of security, which has some value, but not very much.
0: You had that ID since college. <laughs> did, did you use that to get yeah, into yeah. bars? Gro- growing yeah, what, a beard
4: in college worked yeah, what age,
0: well. What age were you when you got that ID? <laughs> Gentleman in the back, in the middle.
5: John Constutter is my name. Uh, two questions, please. First to uh, Mr. Spakowski, Von uh, how, If there were a different administration uh, voted in in November, how possible would it be to reform the uh, civil rights division or uh, voting rights uh, area in the, in the Department of Justice? Second question is really. Directed something Mr. Emilio said, but uh, I suppose I open up to everyone. If, uh, Mr. Emilio <laughs> talked about uh, the, the right, right to vote. The right of whom? The right, right. Is, is it the, the right, right of a citizen? citizen? And if so, shouldn't we be talking about what citizenship means? Not only rights, but responsibilities. And the, and the second part, part is you brought up the, the um, uh, charge uh, by those who <laughs> oppose a lot of the laws of uh, these programs. Are, are racist. And Can I'd just, just like to ask, who do you think um, in this debate are, are the real racists? Thank you. Let's start
2: uh, with, with regard to reforming the Civil Rights Division, very difficult. Um, I, I wrote a series of articles with uh, Christian Adams, who's another former uh, lawyer at, in the voting section, in which we FOIA'd the resumes of all of the lawyers that have been hired during this administration um, into career positions, not political positions, because you know an administration can put whoever they want into a political slot, but the career positions, and it's very clear that for, you look at the resumes, and 100% of the hiring into career positions has been based on politics and ideology. Mm-hmm. And those individuals, you know, once you're a career lawyer, it's almost impossible to to fire you. And the, the other thing that has gone on for many years, and this has happened also during Republican administrations, is particularly the Civil Rights Division. The career managers there are overwhelmingly, all of them, extremely liberal, very radical. I, the, the, the radical ideology I met there was, was more extreme than any place I've ever <laughs> been. And they, for years, have practiced political discrimination in their hiring. The managers hire people in the career ranks that share their views and if you are, if you're a conservative, if you're a libertarian, a conservative, and that's evident on your resume, or in interviews when they talk to you, it doesn't matter how qualified you are professionally, you will not get hired in the civil rights division. And it needs, it needs major reform. Frankly, the other thing it needs is a big budget cut. The the budget of the civil rights division has gone up 25 percent in the past four years. At a time in this country when we have less discrimination that we have ever had in, in our history because we've been so successful in eliminating that over the years. It's not all gone. It's still there, and you need a division to do that. But today, the division is the largest it's ever been, a thousand people, when we have less discrimination than we've ever had in this country.
1: I would just address the racism issue this way. I don't ascribe ill motives to anyone. I believe most of the opponents of this are sincere. However, uh, I think it does not advance the argument and the debate to th- to yell racism in a crowded political theater without clear evidence. Uh, it's a substitute for thought. It's a substitute for discourse. And it's unfortunate. Look, there are some people who are victims of voter fraud that have no voice. And we interviewed a lot of them for this book. These are people who I think are often the most consistent victims of voter fraud, they're minority residents of communities, either in rural areas or in urban areas, where their political machine runs things, and they are ruthless, and they make sure they stay in power. And you can't fight City Hall if City Hall steals the election out from under you. And there are one of the most important things in this book is there are voices in here that are never heard in the mainstream media. The voices of people in Greene County, Alabama, that Hans so effectively tells... These are people who had elections stolen from them, they had bad public schools, their kids would never have a chance in life, bad roads, bad services, and every single time they tried to change the system, they were prevented from winning by fraud. And when they went to the NAACP and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and all of these civil rights groups, Hans will go into the specifics if he wishes, they were told, no, we're gonna fight you. We're gonna stand with the political machine. And this is not an isolated example. Artur Davis, the former Democratic congressman from the area, said, I finally won't defend this anymore. I think voter ID laws are a good thing because it's the only way we can clean up these political machines. Detroit, Kwame Kilpatrick is on trial right now in Detroit on 15 corruption charges. He ran for re-election, and he won partly through voter fraud, Fraud that was so extensive over his reform opponent on the Detroit City Council that the city clerk of Detroit, Jackie Curry, was removed from office because she had either allowed or per- perpetrated the fraud. And she was replaced by someone who finally cleaned up the Detroit city records. I think it would be, a lot, would be a lot better along if the current mayor had been elected years before and we hadn't had a corrupt Kwame Kilpatrick. The same pattern in Philadelphia, the same pattern in St. Louis, the same pattern in Rhode Island. And Hans didn't mention that only African-American speaker of the state house in the, history, in the history of the state was the sponsor of the voter ID bill in the state house. And the chief sponsor was the only African-American state senator. There are people all over this country who are condemned to bad public schools, bad roads, bad services, bad government, because the machine will steal their votes every time. And it also happens in Chicago. And it's a shame that the president of the United States never did anything about it when he was there as a part of the daily machine.
0: I uh, mentioned this in passing, if I'm not mistaken, the reason why the registration rolls, the rolls in general are a mess in the United States, and the reason primarily is a motor voter, which made it very hard to, to clean up the rolls. You
1: effectively have to wait nine years to remove someone from the rolls, even if they're, in in many cases, even if they're dead.
0: gentleman in the back had his hand up before.
5: Rick Sincere, uh, City of Charlottesville Electoral Board. Do you think, which do you think is greater, the number of ballots cast fraudulently or the number of votes that are lost or altered because of clerical error or voting machine malfunction?
2: I I really can't answer that because, as Jeff says, there's really been no studies done, I don't think, trying to catalog that. And it's often difficult to, to do. Um, and, and I'll give you an example of how it's difficult to do. Um, after the 2004 election uh, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, the police there set up this special uh, f- squad to investigate all these allegations of voter fraud. And they did find all kinds of, th- of uh, fraud. They found people voting who were registered multiple locations, um, all, all kinds of other things. They, they even found people who... Had come in and taken advantage of the same-day registration in in the state, who were clearly residents of other states, but there weren't a lot of prosecutions. And one of the reasons uh, that the police cited for the lack of prosecutions was that the record keeping in Milwaukee was by election officials was so sloppy that it would have endangered their ability to get to, to get convictions. So it was again, a combination of just really bad administration, but also fraud being committed by some individuals and and perhaps with the help of some candidates.
0: Anyone else wish to make an estimate? The cost benefit? All right. Uh, gentleman in the blue shirt in the second from the
4: back row. Hi, uh, Max Stone from here on Cato. I'm just interested if the authors could follow up on some of the things that Mr. Mr. Harper said. Do you you share his concerns concerns? about um, increased use of ID for things that are as sort of governmentally important as voting rather than just things that are of less, of daily importance, but not as much constitutional significance? And if, if you do share his concerns, what do you think can be done to make sure that we don't sort of move towards a You know, everybody has to have an ID all the time kind of situation.
1: Well, I testified before the Carter-Baker Commission, and uh, Jimmy Carter was nodding at every point in my testimony until I got to the part where I opposed national ID. You know, the Constitution was constructed for a reason. Uh, There was great suspicion, and there should be, of any kind of centralized governmental control, and that Constitution, as originally written, basically defers to the state's, the localities, and the people. And the powers of the federal government are clearly enumerated, and they are limited. If you wish to change them, you're supposed to amend the Constitution. I'm old-fashioned in that way. I oppose a national ID for a variety of reasons we can go into. Uh, Jimmy Carter was very upset with that, Um, but he did agree, obviously, that voter fraud was a serious concern. As Hans mentioned, he himself was a victim of it early in his political career. Um, I will say that when you get to the issue of Internet voting, which some people are talking about, this is fraught with peril. Um, You know, in Venezuela, they're going to have an election on October 7th. And they have an election commission of five members, four Chavezistas, and one independent. And they control all aspects of the election. All of the electoral machines in the country feed into one central location, one central counting house. The election can be uh, easily manipulated. Now, luckily, they have, the opposition has spotters in every individual precinct, so if the count of the central place doesn't, isn't in accord with the count of the, out in the precincts, uh, you certainly can have a public uprising, but that could be very bloody. So I do believe in our decentralized election system, and I don't believe it should be changed because I don't think a national ID is in accord with that, and nor is it justified. But even though we have a decentralized system, we shouldn't allow the sloppiness that we see.
0: One more question. Gentleman right here in the second row.
5: I'm a Ray Hartwell, Washington lawyer, and I've read the book. I think it's great. Um,
2: In fact, Ray, I I think you did a review of our book for The Washington Times. American Spectator. American Spectator. Uh, uh,
5: (laughs) I think this, this, whether they're in the law schools or in the legislatures, uh, the same people who demonize voter ID on other subjects, find it very fashionable to talk about how we should emulate our friends in Europe and other other foreign countries and international standards. And I, I'd invite the authors to comment, since she made such a good point in the book about Mexico, on how out of step we are, uh, Venezuela accepted, with international norms in this area, and whether bringing that subject into the conversation about it in, in a
2: to a greater extent, might
4: be helpful.
1: Well, the same people who always claim we need national health care because every civilized democracy has it, they never like to admit that every civilized democracy asks people to show an ID when they vote. Um, You know, our completely intolerant and fascist friends in Canada ask for ID. Canada? (laughs) Mexico had obviously a problem with uh, an elected dictatorship for seventy years. When they finally cleaned up their elections, they put in a state-of-the-art election system. And I don't agree with the national ID component, but they have all. I mean, you can go to Mexico and be very confident in the in the results and the integrity of the election. And we are woefully deficient in that area. I mean, we send out delegations all over the world, all over the world, to monitor other people's elections. Well, I'm telling you. We could we could stand some delegations from overseas coming here and monitoring our elections and pointing out their deficiencies.
0: Real quick comment. Yeah, I, I do actually have a question that's inspired okay. by your comments about Canadian. um Elizabeth Graham,
1: Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> um, the question is you said at the very beginning, Mr. Fenton, that you this country has one of the worst voting systems systems you said in place. Um, and I wondered whether you do in the book comment on the reasons for that, the origins of the voting system in the United States, and why it is so lousy compared to two other civilized countries, such as Canada, for example. Well, we, we, this is a very complex subject, so I'm going to give you an oversimplistic short answer. I'm happy to, d- to talk with you in greater detail. We are always told that, you know, Canada votes nationally on a single piece of paper. And they all do paper ballots and they have their election results in two or three hours. And that's all true. Because in a national election in Canada, you vote for one office, you're a member of parliament. That's it. Uh, we, as part of our decentralization, have an incredibly complex ballot in many places. We also have an issue referendum. You know, no one understands this, but we have one million elected officials in this country. One million. An enormous number of us are called to public duty. I mean, my ballot when I lived in San Francisco, I mean, I voted for, I think I had 61 offices one year to vote for, and then I had 15 state propositions, and I had 14 county propositions, and I had various other things. I mean, I was voting for Mosquito Board, (laughs) and even San Francisco doesn't have that many mosquitoes. So uh, part of it is the complexity of our ballot. And part of it is, that, you know, we, we all have, ge- they're all done by geographical units. You know, one of the, one of the fights we're going to have in November is about provisional ballots. You know, if you go to the wrong precinct, should you be allowed to cast a provisional ballot because it's going to contain a bunch of offices you're not eligible to vote for? And that's going to be one of the great sticking points. I, you know, we may ha- not have an election result for three or four days after November 6th simply because we're going to be fighting over the provisional ballots and whether they're valid or not.
0: On that note, I would say that our next step was we're going to have lunch, which will involve going upstairs here at the new Cato, uh, two two levels, and then toward the back. Now, on that uh, course, the restrooms on your right here initially, or if you go up to the second floor and you're walking toward the back of the building, you will notice restrooms off to your right. Uh, so please go back there. And now please join me with thank, uh, to thank everyone, including our authors of Who's Counting and our commentators today for a very nice book forum. Thanks. <laughs>